0: And I will give credits to these master Orf teachers. This is where they are brilliant because they'll ask these little relevant questions and it makes it appear as if students are creating these very brilliant ideas on their own. But in reality, the teacher is carefully guiding the learning process one very careful step at a time.
1: I'm Ben Caplow, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with John Patrick Murphy, otherwise known as JP, about the applications of the Orff Schulwerk approach to piano lessons. John Patrick Murphy teaches applied piano and graduate piano pedagogy at the University of Oklahoma as assistant professor of piano. He earned his Doctor of Musical Arts degree in piano performance and pedagogy at the University of Oklahoma as a graduate college alumni fellow. Dr. Murfing's playing has earned him numerous scholarships and grants, providing performance opportunities at festivals and master classes throughout the United States and abroad. He earned his Master of Music in Collaborative Piano at the Manhattan School of Music, and he completed dual majors in piano performance and pedagogy and music education while earning his Bachelor of Music from the State University of New York at Fredonia. He's completed additional studies across the world, including at the Orford Music Academy in Orford, Canada, the Classical Music Festival in Eisenstadt, Austria, the Galansky Institute at Princeton University, and Orff-Schulwerk training at Hofstra University. Previously, Dr. Murphy has taught music in the public schools of New York State, and his pedagogy research has been presented nationally at the MTNA Collegiate Piano Pedagogy Symposium and at the National Group Piano and Piano Pedagogy Forum, and has been published in the Clavier Companion. This past summer, Murphy presented at the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy. In this episode, we talked about the four stages of the Orff-Schulwerk process of teaching music and their application in the context of piano lessons, meaning imitation, exploration, labeling, and creation. Some of the topics that we discussed include play, movement, and vocal activities, experiencing concepts before labeling, the pedagogical value of incorporating percussion instruments into piano lessons, games, rote teaching, and group lessons. I've been meaning to do an episode about orff since I began this podcast, so I was thrilled to be able to talk to JP about this topic. Hope you enjoy the interview. JP, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation, Ben. I'm happy to be here. Today we're going to talk about the ORF approach and what its relevance is to Piano lessons. One way that ORF is different than other approaches like Suzuki is that ORF kind of emphasizes general principles as opposed to like giving you the lesson plan or a specific method. And you've described this more eloquently as a quote, way of teaching as opposed to telling teachers quote, what to teach. Can you clarify this distinction a little and give our listeners a basic sense of some of the principles that ORF encouraged? Sure. Yeah. You know, before I begin with that, I'd like to just put a
0: disclaimer out that I'm not a master level Orf teacher. I did complete teacher training um, at Hofstra University. So the information I'll share today is a lot of based upon my personal experience in the public schools and mentorship that I've received. Um, And I'd encourage your listeners to check out the American Orff-Schulwerk Association if they're interested for learning more. Um, So Orff-Schulwerk, which literally translates to Orff-Schoolwork, dates back to Germany in the 1920s and 30s. And I think many of your listeners are probably familiar with Karl Orff and um, his well-known composition, uh, Carmina Burano, which is wonderful, but he also was uh, an important music educator in the 20th century. And it's really a philosophical approach towards music education that creates experience-based learning for our students. And it's a hands-on music learning approach that's different compared to other methods that specify curricular content in a particular sequence um, or focuses more on the teaching process rather than the teaching materials. So teachers have the flexibility to use their own curriculum in a way that's effective for their individualized student population. And there are many uh, publications related to ORF and ORF classrooms, including a series of Music for Children by Keatman. But in the United States and in uh, between states and school districts, a lot of uh, individualized curriculums will fit with this ORF show work. Uh, in my experience, when people mention ORF show work, they're actually referencing what is known as the ORF process, and that's the way in which teachers organize the presentation of musical concepts through experience-based learning. And this is a four-stage process that's centered around behaviors and activities that you might find when students are naturally playing. Um, and in fact, most ORF classrooms will feel and look more like playtime or structured playtime. And you'll see elements of games, um, decision-making, peer interaction, movement, speaking, singing, talking, instrument playing, et cetera. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll just kind of begin by highlighting what those four stages mm-hmm. are. Um, the first is imitation, then students will explore Then we label and finally create. Uh, And ORF publications will largely agree that there is not necessarily a hierarchy within the stages and actually elements of the stages will overlap with each other just as it would if you were observing children playing outside. Um, I think that's what makes ORF classrooms appear so seamless and instructive.
1: So I want to ask a little bit about this imitation and explore those portions of the phase. So I believe most teachers and I would include myself in this, the way we would react to how we do that in piano lessons is improvising. So, you know, make up notes in a C pentascale or you know, I'm sure we all have our sort of standard improvisation activities we do. How much of imitation and exploration is improvisation and it, it, in the context of a private piano lesson, is there any way that we could incorporate these imitation and exploration um, aspects of the ORF approach that go beyond just the standard improvisation activities we probably already have in our toolkit?
0: Sure. Well, you know, that's a good point. ORF show work was originally conceived as approach for group instruction. Mm-hmm. So if- the group piano course, it works really well. If you teach um, a musicianship course with your students uh, as a group or a theory course, you could certainly use uh, elements of it. But I do think it can directly be applied to the piano studio. So let me kind of uh, give you an overview of that first stage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really, first off, the most teacher-driven stage in the ORC process. And it's when the teacher is modeling the concept that's being addressed. And the student therefore imitates the teacher. I like to use the phrase with my students, uh, planting the seed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You are introducing something before, way before it's going to be actually identified and labeled for the student. And there are three popular ways to imitate. And um, the first would be simultaneous imitation. And that's when an instructor would um, demonstrate something and prompt the student to simply join them. The second would be echo imitation. This is probably the most common for a lot of piano teachers. And this is when the instructor models something, stops, and then the student responds and does it back. And the third is a little bit more complex. That would be canon imitation. Um, That's easier, I think, sometimes in a voice setting, perhaps. But that's when the instructor models something and the student imitates it, joining maybe with a four-beat delay or something like that. So for piano teachers, though, that echo imitation, it works really well. Um, If you're teaching, for example, a piece out of an early method book, um, and the piece has a new rhythm pattern, you might begin by introducing the piece by chanting the text. right? And you could chant the text without the student even looking at the book. The book could be closed. And they might not see the notation. I would really play into the narrative, too, right? To really get that student hooked. So let's say the piece is talking about an airplane landing, right? You might begin with an open exploratory question, hey, have you been to an airport lately? Or have you been an airport? And they're going to tell you all this exciting thing, and that's exactly what I want, because I want them engaged and hooked into the lesson. And then after hearing me chant it several times, I might say, hey, be my echo. I'll chant it and then they'll respond. So I'm teaching them that new rhythmic pattern without even opening the book, without even showing them if it's a quarter note or a half note. Um, and speaking of speaking and chanting, you'll see quite a lot of that in an ORF classroom. And I think one of the big reasons you'll see in uh, justifications for doing that in ORF publications is because it's the student's natural language. It's what they are used to learning. It's their natural form of learning is through language and their native language. Mm-hmm. So, using a music language to introduce a concept is a pretty abstract concept for those students. Hmm. You know, I've also seen more advanced teachers use simultaneous imitation with some technical exercises or technique elements. For example, let's say you have an advanced student that's working on uh, pedal fluttering. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's an Concept. Instead of describing and articulating verbally why you need flutter pedaling to thin out the sound and how you would do it with your foot and the weight and all of that, and you could simply just demonstrate it and say, "Join me." Right. Be my
1: mirror. Right. So those are all things that happen way before we actually label the concept. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of uh, Francis Clark, who I know also was very big on experience before labeling. Okay, so clarifying for a second, I guess I thought that explore meant improvise. So, so just be so your understanding. So imitation is kind of what you were talking about. Like I play, then you echo, or I sing, then you echo. Explore. Can you clarify a little bit more of this explore phase? You brought up sort of um, singing in a canon or imitating a canon. W- would improvisation fall under the explore category or would that fall under the create category? It
0: could, it probably, could do probably both. Okay. Uh, for me, the second stage in the explore process. Mm. This is once the student has imitated this new concept, and now they're going to try to create it in different ways that is meaningful to them. Mm. We want them to explore. It's repetition, really. We're getting the students yeah. to do this new um, concept over and over again in ways that are fun and. And it's actually it's really exciting to see in group classes because the students will feed off of each other and they'll share ideas and they'll discover all these different possibilities that you didn't really think of. Yeah. and I will give credits to these master orf teachers. This is where they are brilliant because they'll ask these little relevant questions and it makes it appear as if students are creating these very brilliant ideas on their own. But in reality, the teacher is carefully guiding the learning process one very careful step at a time. And you know, when I, I taught in the public schools before getting a doctorate and um I asked one of my mentors, how do you how do you create activities in this exploration stage? And she suggests me, she suggested um, that you could divide them into expressive exploration and compositional exploration. Uh, for example, expressive, you could simply ask a student, how would that new concept sound if we added pedal? How would it sound if we played it twice as fast? How would it sound if a flautist played it? And Mm -hmm. that's a big higher level thinking question. Mm -hmm. And they had to know the timbre of a flute and all those different elements. So again, they're playing, they're exploring a new concept in a way that's meaningful to them. And then I would take your cue from the students Mm -hmm. too. You can have those prompts and then see what they respond with. They might come up with something that you never thought of and then you go along with it, uh, encouraging them to internalize this new concept. And then for compositional, that might be sort of what you were referring to with improvisation, but I would probably do that more in that fourth stage once they've the concept. So compositional, this could be great for older students. You could say, you know, how would that sound if it was played in parallel minor? Or uh, how about we pick a different register at the B section if you were working on some kind of form analysis? So I think I often find myself asking question prompts during this stage to sort of get the ball rolling, but then I'll take my cue from the students.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and I so am on board with the sequencing of this exploration before labeling. So before you tell the students kind of what parallel minor is, you just say, what would it sound like if we made this adjustment? And then they experience it and react, and then you can say, well, this is called the parallel minor as opposed to just giving it to them. I want to move on a little bit and talk a little about kind of the motion and movement aspect of ORF. So in most ORF classes, at least at, you know, elementary schools, uh, the piano is not really part of it. In general, my impression is that it favors instruments that don't require as specialized of a set of motion like a woodblock or a xylophone or even body percussion. And earlier you brought up speech singing, something where the process of making the note happen, it doesn't require quite as fine of a motion as piano when we're always thinking about hand position and how curved are our fingers. And there's all these other kind of considerations. So can you talk about how piano teachers might have students use other instruments in the context of a piano lesson and how that comparatively simple motion of hitting a percussion instrument or chanting can helpfully translate into the scales required for some of the finer movements of piano playing?
0: Sure. Uh, so yes, like you said, I agree. Piano playing is an incredibly complex task, and there are so many fine motor skills involved. And even when performing elementary pieces, it's actually quite complex. So um, the instruments you're referring to, or if they're associated with work classrooms, sometimes they're called elemental instruments. They're um, primarily pitched and unpitched instruments. Um, And they're used intentionally. One, the size factor, right? Many of those unpitched percussion instruments a student can easily, a child could easily hold in their hand and I pass to another student. If you think of the ORF xylophones and metallophones, um, the bars on those are, if you compare that to the size of a key are much bigger, right? Um, They can easily be removed and you can make accommodations to limit the different possibilities of the actual pitches being played. Also, students are holding, like you said, uh, just maybe one mallet and they're playing one note, one hand, as opposed to playing one note per finger per hand that you'll see in even the earliest of method books. Um, So if we acknowledge the complexity of piano playing, I think we can see how using other instruments can be an effective tool in the learning process to work on a specific skill. So back to rhythm let's say an elementary student is working on a new rhythm pattern of quarter notes and half notes the teacher could create an activity and use an unpitched percussion instrument to address the specific rhythm pattern Um, a few weeks ago i was working with a beginner piano student and i was introducing a pattern that had quarter notes and half notes so before the lesson um i created this little tiny little activity and it went like this pumpkin pie pumpkin pie i love pumpkin pie. And when the student arrived, you know, we began with the conversation how it's finally cool and it's finally feeling like fall. And the student said, oh, I just went pumpkin picking this weekend. And I said, no way, I made a pumpkin (laughs) pie this week. And it went right into it seamlessly. And the student was hooked. We started talking about pies. And before you knew it, the student and I were chanting off the bench, this very basic four bar phrase, sort of pumpkin pie activity. Um, and then we transferred it to a hand drum, and the student was stepping in place to the hand drum. And I think the more frequently you do these types of activities, the more comfortable both of you will feel as a teacher, and then the student will just think it's kind of normal as part of the lesson. And then after that, I transferred that to the keyboard, mm-hmm. and the student can then experienced playing on the keyboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some stu- uh, teachers really like to use body percussion, and that's a big part of uh, many Orff work lessons. And Piano teachers, sometimes I feel default to clapping as, as a kind of a comfort zone one, which is, it's great because you can really feel the duration of notes, which is, I think a lot of teachers argue that that's why it's so effective. And you can also move in a circular direction and feel the space relationship. But, you know, you can also expand your body language, uh, body um body percussion. Mm-hmm. It could be adding, it could be shoulder taps. It could be snapping. Mm-hmm. It could be even just sliding kind of down your forearm kind of a thing. And all of those mo- movements might, um, work with an individual student.
1: Yeah. The, uh, one of the recent interviews I did was with a uh, pianist, Benjamin Steinhardt. I don't know if that's a name, you know, but we talked a lot about Gordon in the interview and about sort of Gordon movement activities. And Benjamin also was talking about some of the limitations of clapping and that it's really good if you want to use pulse, but it doesn't as much show concepts like weight or as much the space between notes or phrasing or the shape of phrase. And he talked about all sorts of other activities that Gordon recommended to uh, show rhythm that go beyond just clapping. Um And he brought up like swaying back and forth or kind of um, you could like, uh, th- like move your body down and like bend for the downbeat and then maybe clap beats two, three, and four. And there's so many options beyond just clapping, which is what it seems like teachers default to. So going on this idea of movement, you were saying earlier that you think speech is kind of the student's native language, and I would say movement is very native to what children are experiencing also, and or viewed music as intrinsically linked to movement, connecting him with many other thinkers like Gordon, and who I was just describing, also Dalcroze and many others. So although so many pivotal figures have emphasized the link between music and movement, movement isn't generally used in piano lessons, except for, as you were saying, clapping rhythms, which is hardly movement at all. So why is it important that students use their whole body to express musical ideas? And what are some examples of movement activities that might happen with or uh, classrooms that our listeners could consider for their studios?
0: That's a great question. And you know, I actually, I listened to that podcast last week and I really enjoyed it. You know, there's been so much research that directly links movement and musicianship. um, And it it is innate, like you experience, like you mentioned, we do experience that every day from our earliest moments in in life. I think in addition to feeling the pulse that are in rhythm, I think just feeling the space between the pulses really important like you just shared. Mm-hmm. I think it provides students a chance to exaggerate motions. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, as performers on the keyboard instrument, we are really doing such minimal motions. So oftentimes exaggerating it is much more effective for students to comprehend something. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of some off the bench kind of ideas. Yeah. So. A few years ago, I was working with a middle school student, and uh, the student came in really excited one day to their lesson and showed me a video clip of students, uh, of, of other adolescents, uh, moving and flipping cups to a piece. So you may have seen it. They were flipping cups and passing. It was like a cup passing game. Yeah, like Wendy Stevens rhythm cups or something. Exactly, yeah. uh-huh. yes. And it went viral and the student was really thought it was the coolest thing and it was all excited to show me. And then we went on, we were working on the piece, a piece that was in six, eight time. And the student was just struggling feeling that idea of a macro pulse and micro pulse. They were feeling it in six. I was trying to get the student to feel it more in two mm-hmm. and it just wasn't clicking. So then I kind of had a light bulb moment one day and I said, well, what if I bring in cups to the lesson? And what if I play the piece for the student and have the student move cups? So this is a form of movement. Maybe it's not a whole body movement. It was pretty stationary. The students were sitting, and I had the student flip cups feeling in six, and then exaggerating the motion and feeling it in two. (laughs) The student thought it was the coolest activity, and it was just like what they saw in this viral video, and it actually made a big difference. Then we transferred to the piano, and all of a sudden, the student was feeling it in two. Mm -hmm. It was that exaggerated motion away from the bench that created learning experience. Yeah.
1: One activity that I've used that is, I guess, a little similar to that, that I've tried to use to get students to feel three is bouncing a ball for beat one and then tapping it for two, three. So they bounce, tap, tap, bounce, yeah. something. Again, it, it, it's all examples of things that go, I think, beyond clapping, where you, st- which inevitably shows every beat as equal and so you, you can't really emphasize meter in the same way that you could with cups kind of as you're describing and i do think
0: and kind of going off that you can i mean there's so much more beyond meter and pulse that you can do you know i like to use movement for form
1: oh, how so uh,
0: you know i'll see a lot of piano instructors they'll teach form visually which is wonderful for teaching music literacy and they'll ask questions something like you know where does this section where does this phrase repeat and then the student will find it and say ah yes we're in ABA form but uh, you know you could approach it the same way by having the student walk around the room stepping to the pulse and then say I want you to walk the opposite way when you hear the new section and when it returns go back to the other way oh that's cool it's it's something it just gets them off the bench Mm -hmm. if you're trying to create more variety in your lesson.
1: I also think that would be really useful for the part of the lesson when, if slash when the teacher plays the piece for the student before the student starts working on it. I know oftentimes we just have the student sit and just listen to us demonstrate the piece. And then what inevitably happens is their mind wanders. And um, a lot of piano teachers like encourage giving the students something to do while we demonstrate the pieces. And so I think having them do movement activities while we play it is much more powerful than having them just sit and listen.
0: Absolutely. And also then they're getting, you know, (laughs) yes, although they're listening to the form, we know that they're on on another level, they're developing such a a good sound ideal of the piece, Mm -hmm. right? They're hearing the tempo is going to be, they're hearing the articulation. So it's, yeah, there's so many layers that are just building upon each other. And I'll also mention, you know, When I taught in the public schools, um, the students really love doing kind of folk dance activities. And through that, you can teach so many things in terms of um, feeling timbre changes, dynamic changes, color changes, form, beyond just the ideas of steady pulse, rhythm, and meter. Um, So if you do, in your studio, have a weekly sort of studio class with your students or movement or theory class, Mm -hmm. you might try it. And I I think you'd be surprised how many students actually like doing it, especially at that elementary level. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's hard nowadays with COVID and all of that. Right, of course. Once we get over this, that's something you might, uh, teachers might consider exploring. It it doesn't have to be that complex. um, And the students will, in their minds, think of it probably as a game, Mm -hmm. which I think, One of the whole things about ORF that I appreciate so much is how it seems like it's play, but it's really structured learning. Hmm.
1: Okay, well, that folk dance idea is interesting. I definitely haven't tried that in my studio. Um, So you were talking about folk dance as kind of a group activity. And so I do want to talk a little bit about group lessons because most of today we've talked about one-on-one lessons, but I know we have, I'm sure, a lot of listeners who teach group lessons. Do you have any suggestions of... Um, ORF activities that would work for group lessons, which I'm sure makes sense because I know, as you were mentioning earlier, the ORF method is in general very social, and I know it encourages leadership and team cooperation. So how might a group piano class that's influenced by ORF be different than a general music class at an elementary school that uses ORF?
0: Well, I think, I think they would be actually quite similar. Okay. I think what's different is the presentation in terms of styles in which you're presenting the material. Um, you know, of course, if it's a group piano class, you are focused more at the instrument of the piano as opposed to if you go to an ORF elementary classroom, you might see a lot more variety. You'll, you might see uh, multiple different types of instruments and lots of movement and dancing. So I think that, that would probably be the biggest difference. In terms of the process, I think the process would be actually quite similar I think where you'll see it a little bit different is in that uh, exploration stage. Um, it might be a little bit perhaps more structured if they're sitting, at, let's say, at stationary keyboards. Yeah. Um, But I think it could be quite similar. It's designed to be taught in groups and for the students to interact with each other and to learn. The other thing I'll mention about an ORF classroom, which is pretty interesting, is that students typically there's, there's typically a lot of different things going on at the same time. Oftentimes an ORF Uh, arranged piece. There's a lot of textural elements. There might be one group of students that are working together with the melody. There might be one group doing the accompaniment, Um, or maybe some students will be playing non-pitched percussion, and one will be playing the pitched percussion for um, accompaniment figures. So there's a lot of rotational aspects too that you could incorporate, I think, in YanoLab in particular, um, sharing different jobs and roles. And what's happening is the students are repeating that new concept over and over again, but they're doing it in different
1: ways that, in which they'll find exciting, probably. because yeah. I mean, This is very basic, but I'm sure you, a lot of what uh, we were talking about earlier with imitation and exploration, and you were mentioning... Uh, like imitating cannons. Uh, you could rotate who has which role. So it could be you play and you imitate. Okay, now switch roles and you play and then you play the same thing, but you start with a 10 second delay. Now used. St- I mean, a lot of this, I think sure. you could have the students play roles that the teacher would play in a one-on-one lesson.
0: Yeah, and what's fascinating too is the teacher really becomes uh, less and less involved as the process Mm -hmm. goes
1: on. Interesting.
0: And a lot of times there's transitionals, the the transition might be timed with, you know, four clicks on the glockenspiel or something like that up with something on the piano for them to trans transition to the next station, if you will. And it's it's if you're if you just walk into the room, it's pretty seamless. You'll just see the students knowing sort of what to do and going to the next station without
1: the instructor prompting them for this next. Activities. It's pretty, it's pretty magical if you haven't witnessed it yeah, before. That's exciting. Okay. The last element of ORF that I want to talk about um, is the labeling aspect. Uh, you were bringing up earlier that we want the students to experience the concepts before we label them. So can you talk about, given that, how that would translate in the sense of teaching music notation and Give some ideas about some elements of music notation that stereotypically teachers might introduce in a label first way or like many method books where the label is introduced alongside the concept, how we can sort of preempt some of these music notation symbols through experience and imitation or play.
0: Well, yes. And, you know, as you were saying that, asking that question, I was reminded there's a a famous Orff quote, and he says, tell me I forget, show me I remember, involve me, I understand. I love that. I think that quote really captures the experience-based emphasis of this approach. So as a core belief in this approach, students are going to develop a deeper understanding through imitation and exploration. That's why we explore it first before we label. Um, And this type of learning actually occurs all throughout childhood, right? And this is, I think, an important thing to to think about is when students are learning how to say and read sentences, they often can speak the words and they'll have an understanding of the words long before they can write them, Mm -hmm. right? So it's sort of like that in terms of music, You know, why do we approach music sometimes backwards? Why do we approach it in a way that we're labeling and before they even know what it is or experiencing it? So I would say approaching it in a way that's natural, the way that they use to learn their native language is a really smart approach. Uh, We're fortunate in the ped world, as you said, to have really fabulous method series and we're we're really lucky, actually. And I have the utmost respect and admiration for the pedagogues who have written them and spent their lives writing them. Um, And I think the majority of the mainstream method books are really well sequenced in their unique way with their own unique pacing. And regardless of the reading approach that that method book might use, I really encourage teachers that I work with here at OU to plan ahead. Right? Many of the series actually will publish a chart for teachers that is the most handy chart that just has a list of what concepts are being taught and what pieces they're, you know, that they're using to teach those concepts. So you know, use that as a reference guide and work backwards. Determine when the specific concept's gonna introduce, be introduced and then brainstorm ways in which that seed can be planted way before, several weeks before, so that the student has a successful learning experience when it actually does happen. You know, I I think that those labels in the method books, especially if you're talking about our youngsters that are learning, they're not for them necessarily. They probably can't read some of the majority of the words in the method books. They're probably more for the parents and guidelines for teachers. So I think a proactive teacher who's forward-looking and forward-thinking is a wise teacher in that sense. And, um, and don't be afraid to come up with your own activities and exercises. You know, I'm not going to win a Grammy Award for my pumpkin patch <laughs> melody. <laughs> you never know. But it was really successful. And that student really comprehended that
1: rhythm pattern mm-hmm. by the end of that lesson. I think another activity that would really help in this regard is rote teaching. Um, because when you teach a student something by rote, it's all experience. There's no labels. And so I think basically any concept that you want to eventually introduce as notation could be experienced in a rote piece as well as activities you make up yourself.
0: Absolutely. And you know, the other thing I'll just say too, if you find yourself getting, getting stuck in that label first approach, I think I would suggest experimenting with ways of introducing concepts off the piano bench Mm -hmm. if you ask yourself how can I introduce this concept using speech how can I introduce it movement, singing listening activity that oftentimes will get sort of those creative the creative gate open all of a sudden you'll oh I can I can introduce this first this way and then Move
1: the transfers of the keyboard. Absolutely. Um, Okay, before we go, is there any other aspect of the ORF method that we haven't uh, covered today that you'd like to address?
0: You know, I'll just briefly say that fourth stage of the process is labeled creation or the creating stage. And that's really where we sort of get to see our students thrive and show what they've now learned in those three previous steps of the process. So, after we've imitated, they've explored, we've labeled it, they know what it is, now they put it into context. And I'll just give one kind of concrete example of what that might look like beyond improviso- <laughs> improvisation in the piano studio. Um, I had a student recently working on an Alberti bass pattern. And I had introduced it through imitation. We explored it in different ways. We found it in the music. We labeled it. And then I created a short little composition activity. For that week, the student was going to create a four-measure melody over an Alberti bass. And I had it quite structured with what key it was in and what notes could be in the melody. And it was for me a way of ensuring that the student understood what the Alberti base accompaniment style was like. And I got to really see it in a concrete way when the student came back the next week and had it notated and played it for me. So I think it's an important sort of Final step in the process is letting the student really put it into context in their own way that's meaningful. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I did an episode on this podcast with Nicola Canton, who's the founder of Vibrant Music Teaching, all about teaching composition. And that was one of the ideas that occurred throughout the episode is that you can teach almost anything through composition and improvisation. And when you do, you allow students to experience a concept truly from the inside out, as opposed to just reading it off of a piece that someone else. Wrote. Um, so although we spoke mainly about ORF today, you've spoken and written about a massive variety of topics related to piano pedagogy. So before we go, can you give our listeners a sense of what you're up to now and how everyone listening can learn more about you? Well,
0: Sure. Um, I'm very uh, fortunate to be a new professor of piano and piano pedagogy at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, this is my first year in this new role. I've been Congratulations. here Congratulations. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, It's it's really a wonderful place to be with some wonderful colleagues and wonderful students. And um, I encourage your listeners, if they're ever in Norman, uh, please stop on by. We'd love to host you and give you a tour around. Um, Personally, I'm working on several different projects at the moment, and they have a pretty wide range in topics from um, interpersonal relationships in the studio with our students, um, to effectively teaching functional piano skills, to piano majors at the collegiate level. Um, and overall, I think it's a really exciting time to be a piano teacher. And I'm really grateful for podcasts
1: like this for enriching. Thank you. And I'm grateful for professors like you who are doing research on these very important topics. I mean, interpersonal relationships with students is obviously something that we're all thinking about. So thanks again for everything you do. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All keep Up. I'll see you next time.